Well, good morning. And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad that you could be here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel. And last week we began a series working our way through the book of Galatians. And this week we're going to continue that series. And uh, I love the book of Galatians. It's sometimes called the Little Romans because it covers ground so similar to the book of Romans, but it does it much more succinctly. I don't know if you've noticed how long the book of Romans is. It's long. Um, But let's pray and then we'll get into our scripture for today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for another Sunday that we could be together. Thank you for beautiful weather outside and uh, the the promise of summer and the new crops in the ground and just everything that's going on, Lord. Lord, you're so good to us. We love you for that. We praise you for it. We pray that you would do a good work in us today, that you would make us more like you, that we would notice a difference, that those around us would notice a difference because of you in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to read to you our passage today, but before we do that, I want to give us a quick reminder on the context, because Galatians 1, chapter 1, finishes with Paul talking about his conversion story and what he did immediately afterwards, about how Paul did not immediately go out and begin preaching, and that he he also didn't immediately go to Jerusalem and meet with the other apostles. And this is important, because Paul being unknown in Judea, means that he is operating independently, which matters because this part of Galatians is a doctrinal dispute. In fact, it's not even so much about doctrine, which is teaching, right? It's not so much about teaching, it's about right action. So let's read our chapter for today. Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running, and had not been running my race in vain. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, that is, the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas, remember Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For, though, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The second chapter of Galatians can be divided into two parts. The first part is verses 1 to 10 and speaks of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. And the second part is verses 11 to 19 and speaks of Peter's visit to Antioch. So in order to understand Paul's visit to Jerusalem, we need to do a little teeny bit more setting the stage by jumping back to chapter 1 and reminding ourselves of the context in verse 6. Right? This is Peter's, or not Peter's, Paul's whole thesis for the letter. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. A different gospel. Now, it's very easy for us in our modern world to ask questions like, well, how do you know that what you believe is right? And there's some merit to that question. That is a good question to be asking. I think that we can all think of examples in our lives where a piece of information has come along later and changed our perception of the world. And especially in a matter like faith, how do you know that what you have is the right message? And just so that we're clear, we're talking about the gospel when we say message. When you see the word gospel in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's the word euangelon, which means good. You means good. And angelon is message, as in angel. Angel comes from this word. In, in angel in Greek is angelos and means messenger and the message. So it's the good message. The good word is the gospel. So how do we know if we have the right message? That's important. Well, Paul's answer, and we can imagine he probably would have been a little bit snarky about it, is that he got it directly from Jesus Christ himself, presumably revealed while he was on the road to Damascus, which sounds great, but it also raises some new questions, right? It sort of just bumps the question back a level. How, Paul, do you know that the message you received, presumably from Jesus, was really Jesus, or was really what Jesus taught when he was with the other disciples? How do you know that you didn't hallucinate, or maybe it was actually a demon who was appearing and trying to deceive you? And that is where chapter 2 comes in. 
Paul is answering this question. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, and this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not run my race in vain. This is exactly what Paul is answering. He is saying, how do I know it's the right one? Paul goes and he shares the gospel as he understands it with the leaders in Jerusalem. And what do they have to say about it? In verse 6, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism, they added nothing to the message. Added nothing. They heard Paul's message, the gospel according to Paul, as it were, and their response was, yep, sounds about right. I think that that's about as confident as we can expect to be in what Paul had to say. I'm not really sure what more Paul's audience could expect, right? Like, did they need an angel to appear in the front row when Paul was preaching and start nodding along and taking notes? Because that's that's about what the next step would be at that point, right? Paul has spoken to the direct disciples of Jesus, and they've agreed. And then Paul adds this little note at the end of the story, which I really appreciate. So the apostles have affirmed Paul. They've affirmed Paul's calling to share the gospel message with the Gentiles. And then at the end of their encounter, in verse 10, it says this. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. And here's the crucial message that this brings with it. Right action follows right believing. Paul went to Jerusalem to get his doctrine checked. He wanted to make sure that he was teaching people to believe the right thing. And almost as an afterthought, hello? For those of you online, there's a phone ringing in the back here. He wanted to get his doctrine checked. Uh, And then almost as an afterthought, because it hadn't come up out loud until this point, he says that he had been eager to care for the poor. Right? He hadn't said that yet. That hasn't come up at all in the chapter. And yet he says this is how he's felt all along. Because they're connected. When you believe right, when your mind and your heart and your soul aligns with what God is teaching and making you into, then your hands and your feet and your mouth begin to follow. What you believe comes out in your actions. Now, this isn't to say that you must be perfect immediately upon confessing Christ as Savior. That's not the expectation, and that wouldn't be a reasonable expectation. Christians fall short at all times and in all ways. We need to be very clear on the order of the relationship. You become more righteous as you draw nearer to God. You do not draw nearer to God as you become more righteous. Right action, moral behavior does not get you closer to God. It can't. This is essential to the conflict in the second part of our text today. So as we arrive at the second part of the chapter, starting in verse 11, which focuses on Peter's visit to Antioch, Antioch was a very important city, and 
maybe you don't know this. To me, this is very interesting because I love history and I love church history and a lot of this, this time period. Antioch was important for a number of reasons. Antioch was Paul's home base, which is obviously important to us, knowing what an effect Paul had. It was the one that sent him out on his missionary journeys. Whenever we see Paul going out to visit churches, he's starting from Antioch. And it was a center of Christian activity. For the early church, there were a few cities, just a few, that were considered centers of Christianity. The main five from pretty early on were Jerusalem, pretty obvious, Rome, Alexandria, which is in Egypt. There was one in the Greek area, and there was some debate about whether it was originally Ephesus or Corinth, but eventually it actually settled in the city of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. And the last of these five centers of Christianity was in Antioch. It was one of these top five places for like three or four centuries or more of the Christian faith. It was one of the main centers. And this groundwork that we've been laying about Paul's qualifications of laying out that the gospel according to Paul is the exact same thing as the gospel according to Peter and James and John and Matthew, etc., is all going to become very important. Because the church in Antioch was also important because it was one of the first churches to have a significant Gentile population. Because we need to remember something really important about this context. What ethnic background was Jesus? Jewish, that's right. What about Peter? John? Paul? Mary Magdalene. They're all Jewish. All of them. Jesus' whole ministry was, as he put it, to the lost sheep of Israel. With a few notable exceptions. There was a centurion, there was a Syrophoenician woman, uh, the city in Samaria with the woman at the well, though an argument could be made that the Samaritans are are Israelites. But Jesus' ministry was primarily, like 98%, to the Jews. All of the disciples were Jewish men. Everyone in the upper room when the Spirit of God fell was Jewish. Everyone who believed at Pentecost when Peter got up and preached and 3,000 believed, all Jewish, right? For the first several years, probably around 7, 8, the timeline's a little bit fuzzy because that particular detail wasn't the Bible's concern, but for the first seven or eight years of the church, Christianity was an entirely Jewish movement, which meant that everyone who was in the Christian church had this background in Judaism. They understood the law. They knew the Torah. They followed Moses. They worshiped at the temple. They followed Shabbat. They kept kosher. The Venn diagram was just a circle. But then something amazing happened. And it was something that they had good reason to expect God had spoken plenty in the Old Testament about Israel's blessing going to the entire world. And Jesus had spoken of this as well. In the Great Commission, Jesus commands the disciples to go into all the world, right? He sends them to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This shouldn't be a surprise that Gentiles start to come in to the church. And they do. They begin streaming into the church. Eventually, the church became such that Gentile believers were the vast majority, which isn't surprising given that there are simply far more Gentiles than Jews, right? Like, that's not a surprise. 
But this Gentile majority was not always the case, and the transition wasn't easy. When you're a church that's composed entirely of Jewish believers, and someone who's a Gentile comes in and wants to believe in Christ, it seems entirely reasonable to ask whether they need to first become Jewish. Do they need to go through Moses before coming to Jesus? It seems like a perfectly reasonable question. And this is the question that had come up in the church. Paul teases this question in the first part of chapter 2, even though he's still talking about his trip to Jerusalem, when he says in verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So this is the issue, though. Do you need to become Jewish before becoming Christian? Is being a Christian sort of like being level 2 Jewish? Do you need a bachelor's degree before you can get a master's? Do you need to complete year, four, year three before you can move on to year four? Right? This is, this is what the thought process was. And so circumcision is one of the big issues surrounding this question. There are three main issues that come up in the New Testament around the question, how Jewish do you need to be in order to be Christian? Circumcision was one, dietary restriction and the Jewish food laws one another. And a third but a lot less important was the question of Sabbath observance. And this happened to the church in Antioch as well. Peter came to visit and everything was good. The believers were all fellowshipping, they were eating, they were sharing together. Jewish believers and Gentile believers, they were all one in Christ Jesus, as Paul will go on to say later in this letter. But then we read in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Right? That was the good times when Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But then certain men came from James. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, I'm the kind of person who tries to see himself in the Scripture. And as a result, sometimes I make a little more leeway than perhaps I should. But Paul is pretty adamantly against this idea that you need to become Jewish in order to be Christian. And I am too, just to be clear. What I'm less adamant on is the characterization of those who disagreed with Paul. Personally, I think it's entirely possible that these were well-meaning but mistaken Jewish believers who wanted Gentiles to come to Christ and they sincerely but mistakenly believed that the Gentiles had to go through Moses to get to Jesus. Now, Paul says I'm wrong. Okay? Look at how Paul characterizes them, whom he calls the Judaizers in this verse 4 of this chapter. The matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ and to make us slaves. That's, that's a lot. In, ch- in chapter 5, later on in this letter, Paul gets really graphic, speaking of those who insist upon circumcision, which is to say becoming Jewish in order to become Christian. And he says in 5.12, As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves just in case you're starting to think the Bible is boring. (laughs) 
Now, the reason that I feel some charity toward these people is because I feel like this is an issue that we could easily see today. Today, we might refer to this as gatekeeping. Certainly, we don't have anyone demanding that you'd be circumcised in order to be a Christian. But what about other moral behaviors? You must stop doing whatever sin in order to be really a Christian. You must believe some specific doctrine. I don't mean something important like the Trinity, but, you know, some minor obscure thing. Or else you're not a real Christian. You must vote a certain way, or else you're not a real Christian. You must send your kids to certain schools, or you're not really a Christian. And when we start hearing things like that, I start to be a lot more on Paul's side here. The essence of Peter's trip to Antioch and the story that Paul shares is that Peter got caught up in this Judaizer movement. Peter was led astray and he started to act like he was better or separate from the Gentile believers. And even Paul's friend Barnabas, who went with Paul on the journey to Jerusalem in the first part, was caught up in this. And Paul preached his gospel the same gospel that he preached to the Galatians, and the same gospel that we preach today in order to correct Peter and to put back together the two parts of the church that were being divided. Let's just read it because it speaks for itself. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, can't you just see Paul gesturing to the other people in the room? Not the sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, does that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So why does this matter? Because it is absolutely crucial that you and I understand that there is no intermediate between us and Christ. Jesus is right there, ready to receive us, ready to listen to us, ready to speak to us. You don't need to come to church to meet God. You don't need a pastor to connect you with God. You don't need to go through certain rituals and rites in order to get to God. He's right there. He's ready and waiting. We must not be fooled into thinking that God is waiting for us to perform before he will accept us. 
We must not be fooled into thinking that we need to act or dress or think or speak a certain way before we can be accepted by God or even be accepted by the Christian community. We as believers must extend that same grace that we've received from God to those around us. We must be so full of the grace and mercy of God that it overflows onto those around us. If you're listening today, either here in person at Elam Chapel or online, if you're listening and realizing that you don't have that grace, that you need that grace from God, whether for the first time or you just need that cup refilled, we would love to pray with you. Come down to the front at the end of the service or if you're online, you can click for prayer and there will be somebody who can pray alongside you, either myself or one of our other volunteers. We would love to pray with you. We cannot become right with God through our own actions. We can't earn it. Only God's love can cover our sin and restore us to right relationship with him and begin to mend the brokenness of our lives. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing one more song and then I'll invite those of you down to pray with me who would like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There's a lot in this passage, God. You sure packed it in. But Lord, it's a lot to chew on. Lord, make us the good soil. Make sure that the, the little birds don't snatch away this word as we walk out of here. Help us to chew on it as we go. Help us to reflect, to remember, to be changed by your word, to have our minds washed by it and renewed. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to trust you. Help us not to trust in our own works, but to remember the order that we draw near to you and then the works come. We don't work to get close to you. We need you, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.